And good morning and welcome to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I am a guest host today. My name is Marie Stone. Claudia is out this week, but she has uh, gracefully recorded some fantastic programming. So I am going to introduce now Bill Achenbach. He is coming up now and um, let's get him started. My guest for this portion of the show is Reverend Dr. Bill Allenbach with a brand new book to present to us today entitled Cramming for Finals, New Ways of Looking at Old Church Ideas, published by Summit Run Press. In the book, along with an endearing and probing theology lesson, we do get his biography, but here's a brief one to introduce him. He completed his undergraduate work at Kenyon College, then joined the Marine Corps with the tour of duty in Korea. He attended the Church Divinity School of Pacific. And as an Episcopal priest, he was involved for 15 years as a rector, a vicar, a youth minister, what he terms exciting ministries, as well as the founder of a drug clinic, coffee house, and runaway shelter, all in Hawaii. Bill Allenbach then returned to California, where he worked with the Diocese of Los Angeles. He completed his master's in social work at the University of Hawaii, and later started his own corporation known as People Helpers, Inc., Operating at a drug treatment center, Bill worked with street gangs and for California deafblind services. After hanging up the professional life, both Bill and his wife of 57 years and counting and have scratched their travel itch to travel around over 67 countries. Bill earlier appeared on this show in March of 2016 to talk about his wife Anne's and his work with literacy tutoring in Orange County's jails. He is the author of several books, including What's God Got to Do With It? and How to Get to Heaven Without Going to Church. Today, it's a special pleasure to talk about his latest release entitled Cramming for Finals, New Ways of Looking at Old Church Ideas, published by Summit Run Press. He comes to us today from Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Bill Allenbach. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Nice to talk to people in the community. Usually it's someplace else. Okay. Well, you've got all the radio waves and beyond, the podcast waves, all that you'd like. Well, congratulations on completing yet another book. It was a refreshing provocative and a highly affirming read. It's always a little tricky to cover a book without giving away the best nuggets, as I encourage listeners to get their own copies. Well, congratulations, though, Bill. Thank you very much. It, uh, I got off to a slow start, but I finally said to myself, I need to sit down and get this done. So uh, my wife and I, what we do, we go skiing for six weeks, and we'd ski in the morning, and then the afternoon, I was very willing just to sit in a chair and keep on writing. So after two ski seasons, I, I finished it. And, uh, but that, to me, that was the best way to get it finished. So with the alpine mist in your lungs and cleared head is how you've attacked your text. That, that gives us even more context that, that I'm happy to hear about. Well, your book provides very accessible theology lessons. Who are you trying to reach on this one, Bill, beyond reaching the choir? Now, I, I really don't want to, it's not a book written for theologians. They could they'd probably laugh at some of my research. It's a book written for lay people in the church, and it's written for people outside the church. So I try not to use a lot of theological jargon. I try not to quote the Bible too much. Uh, I try to make it a, a fast read so that people have some things to think about, but they don't have to wade through it forever. And, uh, and I think that's, that's one of my sort of bottom lines in all my books, make it short and concise and so people can sit down and read it, read it in a hurry, and then have lots to think about. Well, your title initially implied to me that it might address end-of-life circumstances, but it, that's not the case at all. It's about one's a whole approach to life creation, to values, to how one conducts one's relationships and that kind of a thing. So that's just to set aside whether some think about that. 
So it simply turns, as I, I put it, it turns conventional Christian thinking on its head, which you've done bobbing and weaving throughout your careers in the military and church organizations and beyond. So why did you use this title? It's a, it's a lovely introduction you offer us. Well, thank you very much. I think the title came because uh, my good friend, Father Tom Scudder, back in Carroll Stream, Illinois, and the book was uh, dedicated to him. Right. He was a fantastic Roman Catholic priest. He, we like to tell jokes, and I told that one. He really liked it, and I think he used it to tell in his congregation. But it's two little boys playing in a house, and they're running in and out. They're about 10 years old. And one little boy uh, is a neighbor kid, and he, he notices the old lady sitting by a window, and she's in her rocking chair, and she's rocking for a little bit. Then she opens up the Bible and reads a little bit, and then she falls asleep and goes through the whole process. And so the little neighbor kid asked the, the young man who lived there, who's that lady? And he said, that's my grandma. She's cramming for the finals. And uh, Tom liked that, that joke, and so I said, that, that's a good way to start with it. And it was also a good way kind of to introduce the idea of, is there anything after this? And how do you cram for the finals? And I think my ending is very different than probably what most people would have expected. But your book is all about the midterms. It is, but uh, I think it's so much about the midterms because I'm not so sure that there's anything after this. Uh, We're fortunate in the fact that we're brought into this space age. I was reading this morning one of my uh, reading meditations that there's 100 billion stars and 100 billion planets. And that, to me, says this: the Earth is just a speck of sand in a very large beach. And I can't really think that we're special and that we have a special place to go. Uh, I think I go back to the Old Testament and say, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Uh, the bottom line is, I, of course, I can't prove any of this, uh, but the bottom line is, no matter what is after the curtain comes down, you have to live this life to the fullest. And there are people who sit around cramming for the finals. There are people who aren't enjoying this life. And so I'm trying to appeal to that kind of attitude. Enjoy what you have in front of you because we're all very terminal. And I picked that fact up in my second year in seminary when the fire engine broadsided me and my uh, good Marine Corps friend. We were both in seminary together, Brad. He was killed instantly. And uh, for some reason or other, I was slid under my motorcycle, and I'm obviously here talking about it. Right. But, so I, I think uh, I had to ask that hard question, why, why Brad, not me? Uh, and, and I think I've been asking that question uh, because the older I get, the less I think there is something there, and the more I need to really concentrate on how I'm doing life at this particular stage and making sure that it's full all the time, it's, it's creative, it's progressive, and I'm having a good time doing it. And so that's, that's where I come from on, uh, on that life of cramming for the finals. The cramming is here now. Uh, enjoy life. Have you had it? So as you say, why? And then you did pick up fine. You said how. The, the book is all about the how and how one gets, keeps getting through. And you, you lay out such a lovely explanations and settings and circumstances for how that how was put upon others and how the what the choices are for getting through of that how so do you think your book will change the way an observant christian with hard-baked beliefs about truth in the bible that those truths should be literal that they see their theology no if they even buy the book they'll probably use it for fire starter uh, because oh. it's not where they're coming from. I can remember one time a lady told me in one of my other books, she was a priest, if I were the rector, the head person in this parish, I'd tell you to take your book and get out of here. I, and I said, have you ever read it? And she said, of course not. I wouldn't read. It was how to go to heaven without, uh, how to get to heaven without going to church. And so when you run across that mentality, I, yeah, I just have to let that mentality alone. If people aren't willing to grow in every way in their life, uh, they're dead. And so... Uh, my theology, as I tried to explain in the first chapter, uh, the journey, uh, has been changing all the time. And because I don't think uh, the theology is stagnant, I don't think Jesus' message is stagnant, I think it, it's alive no matter how many centuries after uh, he died. It, it's a, just a, a fantastic message. And I, have, I felt I've lived a, a fantastic life 
by believing in Jesus as a prophet sage. And in my book, I briefly go over when did Jesus become God? And there's an interesting history in, in that. So I, I, I write a little bit about how uh, he died. I don't think there was any indication he was God. But 10, 15 years later, all of a sudden, he was the sacrificial lamb. He was the son of God. He, they put all kinds of titles on him. And I Paul is the person who did this, and I don't think Paul did Jesus any favors. I think he changed the basic message. But on the other hand, I'm eternally grateful for Paul that he got out in uh, and spread the word all over in diaspora. So I, on one hand, I don't like what he did to Jesus' message. On the other hand, it certainly was his message, Jesus as the Paschal Lamb, as the sacrifice, which I think uh, sold a lot of people in the business. Uh, people wanted to to be saved. I'm not so sure that there are that many people who really want to be saved now, but uh, or at least I don't hang around them or they don't hang around me. Well, what I noticed in your discussion of Paul or Saul, because he, he was a Jew and that was his name, I noticed that there isn't any reference to Nietzsche's Antichrist, and what, uh, which lays out what Saul's motivations were for his part of the scripture. You know, I, I think I, I really wanted to be careful, to be really honest with you, Claudia, yes. when I took the book to my editor, and she had edited my books previously, uh, I said, here it is, 340 pages. And she looked at it, read it, said, I really like your book, now let's get it down to 140 pages. And when you do that, you have to be a little careful about being too academic, bringing in too many people, or people either gloss through that or they get bored. So I, I think we were very cognizant of the fact I just have to be careful about putting so many references in there because, again, as I said in the beginning, this isn't a scholarly work. This is a provocative work and for people to ask the hard questions. And I've had calls from all over the world. I got one yesterday yes? Tell by us. Orca Spain about a, a former priest who left the priesthood. and He, uh, he loved the fact that I was, uh, I was tickling his interest. And so... That's, that's the job of that book, and that's what I really wanted to do, not become this great scholar they were. Well, the, the scholar, the reverend that you're all listening to, for those who've just joined us, is Reverend Dr. Bill Allenbach, a retired Episcopal clergyman and an author of several books today, talking about his most recently released book entitled Cramming for Finals, New Ways of Looking at Old Church Ideas, published by the Summit Run Press. Well, the, you really... Give for those who aren't as well versed in in Jewish theology. You talk about storytelling versus midrash as a as, and sort of as you're sort of navigating the divide in how our, what our belief systems are in your book. And so maybe there's an excerpt that you'd like to read to us or speak directly to the fact that midrash is an important processing of theology that's that I, I find that makes I'm not a Jewish person but I find that's what distinguishes Judaism from especially fundamentalist Christianity is that there is this interpretive process always going always questioning that does not exist in the the more hard-baked evangelical and much of uh, Christian theology you know uh, I, I think one of my biggest regrets in life is that in seminary we didn't have uh, like a year in rabbinical school or a year of really getting to feel how Jesus the Jew, born a Jew, died a Jew, Paul the Jew, born a Jew, died a Jew, all the people, close followers of Jesus, they thought Jewish. I don't think Jewish, and I think Christian, and I think that was a real weakness in my training because it took me a long time to realize what Midrash was, the interpretation. And I went back to a seminar last uh, summer in, at my alma mater, Kenyon. It was called Beyond Spiritual Writing, and it uh, was a great seminary. What, Rabbi was one of the teachers. He sat down, he spent a lot of time with his writing Midrash, because it's such an, an important part. And the thing I liked about Midrash that really appealed to me was the fact that uh, you can have four, five, six interpretations of the same passage. None are wrong. That's the part I really like. None are wrong. They're, they're all put in the Torah. They're all put in uh, the books so people can see other people's interpretation. We don't understand that. And 
already my my wife and I are heading back to Israel. Uh, we've been there in 63, but we never got up to the northern part. I need to get to Galilee. I need to sort of live amongst the Jews for a while and not have an Arab Muslim take me around to the sites. I'd love to have a, a Jewish scholar take us around and talk about the sites and why they were so important. Because I, I think... People are almost surprised to hear that Jesus didn't start a church and he was Jewish. He died a Jew. No, he couldn't have. He started the church. And so I think this Jewish influence uh, is so important, and it's, it's been a lot more important to me uh, since I really became a progressive Christian because I see that lack of training. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I'm a little bit terrified of the Old Testament, because if I read it literally, I'm missing it. And I don't have the tools to wow. read it the way it should be read through midrash and through interpretation. So I think that's the background in this. And I love the Jewish part of Jesus. I've spent a lot of time reading and studying that aspect of, uh, of his life. And, and so I, I thought, you know, Annie and I really need to get back there and just walk amongst these Jewish sites and sort of get that feel underneath our feet. So th that's one of my strong points I'm, I'm saying to the seminary and the Church of the Future. We need to give our trainees, A, you need to put them in multi-faith seminaries so that we can learn to hold hands with the Jews, the Muslims, the Baha'i, the, uh, all these Sikhs, all the other religions, and that we really need to take a hard look at giving our newly ordained clergy a lot more information about Judaism because that those are our roots, the whole Christian church, the whole roots are all about Judaism. So I push that hard. I don't know whether anybody will bother listening to me. I do know there are some very good seminaries like uh, the one uh, here in up in Claremont that are doing that, and and I've talked to a couple of seminarians, and they find it very useful uh, to be hanging around rabbis of the future, to be hanging around imams of the future, and so I, I think this is maybe could be one of the keys for a future church to exist, if there is one to exist. And the Claremont Seminary is a Methodist seminary, correct? Uh, yes, it was started by the Methodists, but uh, they have branched out they're very progressive, and they're really the prototype of where seminaries are going. Really? Back at this spiritual conference, I was talking to a man who was the dean of Bexley Seminary, and his whole job was to change the seminary from an Episcopal one to a multi-faith one. And once he did that, he was going to go into retirement. So there are plenty of people who are out there doing that kind of thing because they realize its value. Well, is this a good time for an excerpt pertaining to this general area, or do I, do you yeah, want me let, to broadside you with my favorite question about Jesus? Okay, let, let, let me just say, to piggyback on that particular yes. idea, I said here, the foundation stones of my marching orders. And I kind of compare my marching orders in the Marine Corps of what I was to do on invasion right. as a tank officer. And, and they, they gave me direction, and I, I see there are certain passages within the Old Testament that uh, Jesus quoted that really give us our marching orders. So I'm saying the foundation stones of my marching orders are Jesus' references to the Old Testament. First, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God uh, with all your soul, all your mind, all your heart, and all your strength. Then he quotes Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then the teacher says, there is no other commandment greater than these. In other words, this commandment about loving self, neighbor, and creation is the most powerful tool there is. And as a matter of fact, it's the basis of my whole theology. Yes. Uh, my foundation stone is based on that. So I, I always, whenever I read or say that passage again, I'm always filled, yes, this is what I am to do in my life. I am not necessarily... Uh, have to run around in ecclesiastical garb and my Eucharistic vestments and do holy things. Uh, that's fine, I guess, but my real job is to love self, neighbor, and human, uh, and all of creation. So if you were to ask me my favorite, that's one of the favorites because I need that reminder all the time. Here's what I'm to do. Well, I guess we all do, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not special that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, that's the and point. That, some people are floundering. They They think Jesus is 
they don't even understand who Jesus is. They think he's this meek, mild, little old man who, who never stirs up any arguments or disputes. Yeah, he was a radical revolutionary. And this is a radical statement. Here's a Jew taking, quoting from his own books and saying, hey, my friends, and he was talking to the Jewish world at that time, Here's what we're to do, and we've gotten away from it. We now have 613 commandments, and we're so busy following those, we forget what we're even supposed to do. So uh, I I think I I love that reminder. Well, you give us some food for thought about how he's appeared in recent congregations, this sort of Nordic uh, vision and all that. And, And you talk about what he was about where he was, how he got around, and his actual Middle Eastern lineage and his Jewish lineage, and I always wonder, not just in the way he looked, but in his bearing that you just described to us, what congregations, what current congregations do you think would have a problem or no problem accepting him in? Uh, I I think. Uh I'm not sure whether accepting him or whether he would bother going. Uh, oh. I think the the religions that have long lists of those who aren't worthy of of being saved or uh, worthy of being involved in the church, uh, probably he wouldn't go there, and they probably wouldn't invite him. Uh, I belong to Irvine United Congregational Church, which does a marvelous job of just doing this. It's a very progressive uh, Christian church here in Irvine that. Uh, that pretty much takes these words and makes them uh, live alive here. So I'm not so sure that, although my friend Father Tom, to whom I dedicated the book, uh, loved that passage. Tom was not a very good Roman Catholic. At one time he he said he told his bishop that his real bishop was John Spung, the ex, uh, ex-bishop in the Episcopal Church, who's raised a lot of havoc. And so I'm not so sure that there aren't churches here and there that really meet the standards. I know one of the books I've read was When Jesus Became God by Bart Erdman. Bart Erdman was a fundamentalist, and when Bart writes this book, and I've also seen his 30-part chapter on great courses, this man's come a long ways. I think he would he would love to meet Jesus. I'm not so sure that some of the real fundamentalist churches would be happy with, with him and what he said to them, because they do have lists. And I absolutely don't believe anybody can be a follower if there's one person on that list, whether it's the LGB community, somebody who's had an abortion, somebody who isn't sure who they are, somebody who has some mental issues. All these people are welcome into this empire of, of Jesus. And so I find here and there there are just some great churches, and I can't put my finger on it. You know, there's a, some great Episcopal churches, but in my own diocese of Hawaii, they're closing churches left and right. I think we're up to 15 churches that have been closed since I left there, and they're closing more just because they're not relevant. They're not doing what needs to be done in this day and age. So I think that you really walk an extraordinary line of accessible theology and in a very earnest message i don't think anybody should hazard to call this theology light i think it puts a different meaning to accessibility is that what do you cringe when you hear me make that distinction no no not at all okay well i'd like for did you want to read a different portion so people could get a little taste of the mood that you create in this uh, okay, I, I guess there's there's a portion that I I feel always a little silly with, but I, I do quotes and and even though this is silly and laughable, it's the heart of my message. Okay. This is, was said by the comedian Fred Allen. Live each day as if it's your last, and one of these days you'll be right. <laughs> and you know I, mm. I I just love that passage because it it's in the, it's the last thing I have in the book. And that's because that's what this book is really all about. Live each day as if it's your last. I hope it's not, but it can be because we're all terminal in some way or the other. So uh, if I were able to use a quote, uh, that would be my second quote because, in essence, in uh, in ten words, I I sum up the, the whole book there at the end. I know sometimes I actually say that myself. Uh-huh. Sort of like do it, do it today, or do this, 
do this, whatever, if I'm talking to a radio colleague, do this show like at your last. But I think some people cringe a little bit to think that I'm, you know, about ready to, you know, jump off a cliff. So uh-huh. it's a, a kind of a, for them, a, a dire way, but same. But I, I, that really, really resonates with me. So uh-huh. are you going to be doing any book tours? Are people able to interact with you and get a book signed well, somewhere? I, I do have my website, and it's pretty easy. It's www. Peace, uh, love, joy, hope, all one word. And it, I, I write a weekly blog, uh, which is kind of an interesting process. Again, I try to make them 600 words, so uh, you can read it in a hurry. We're, we're all busy people. And uh, so that's a good start. I'm always available for speaking engagements. I have some courses I do. Um, uh, I had a friend help me with uh, PowerPoint. And, uh, I have one course called The Historical Jesus how do I see Jesus with all this information? Another one I have is uh, it's called Charting the 21st Century Reformation, uh, how we need to start that reformation. Uh, I have another one, Let's Talk, which is a whole bunch of ideas that I have that I love to hear people's discussion. M- most of what I try to do is discussion groups because I find that's where people really shine. If they have a chance and their ideas are totally accepted, they're there never has been and never will be such a thing as a dumb idea. And so I, uh, I, I love to start dialogues. I love to start discussions. And I do a lot of it in our own church. So uh, if you get into the, my website, I'm easily accessible. I'm accessible uh, here in Irvine. Uh, our name is in the phone book. And uh, I don't mind it. I know maybe somebody's going to call me and be angry, but I'll let you know this. It wouldn't be the first per- person that's called me and called me some n- unkind names, but that that's part of the routine. When you stick your neck out there, the, uh, you expect some people to sort of uh, chop it off if they can. So, uh, But I'm available to do anything that people would like that gets the discussion about the future of the church, the future of religion in our country going. I think it's a, it's a very important subject at this time. I'm familiar with Amy Beale's family, what oh, yeah. they've gone through, that this Amy Beale was a Fulbright scholar who was bludgeoned to death in a Cape Town township in, I believe, it was 1994, yes, and uh, the family was then based in Newport Beach, and you bring up her case as well as you bring up a whole Armenian ethnicity as examples of getting through it or getting hung up on some of uh, uh, dealing with grief and i i think there i'd love to hear you take this book to an armenian congregation or a, a civic forum and engage in the discussion because you you really uh, i think that's probably the hardest sell for me is where you say that the the armenian people need to move on uh, forgive and i i don't I don't see the symmetry going on the way I saw it with the the Beale family. The Beale family knew they got to know there were just there there was their daughter and there were the four plus perpetrators and they were able to establish common purposes and chart and char, charters I should say. And I I think that the whole the whole a whole Armenian people gen, uh, families that were wiped out forever and a a, a governmental regime, a Turkish regime that has always dodged the entire piece of their of their responsibility in that, and it's a there are two very different kinds of exercises in forgiving. And I I don't know if you're if you're looking for if you've already ha- engaged in an Armenian audience. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if any Armenians will read it. I'd always be delighted to sit down and talk about it. I can't do anything about what happened a minute ago, but boy, can I do a lot about what happened uh, five minutes from now, because that's where I am. We can't bring anybody in the Armenian community back to life. doesn't mean that we can't dedicate scholars from Armenian, pay their way to make sure that this never happens again, that we can eradicate some of this hatred in the world. To me, that would be a much more concrete approach to this, and it's the Amy Beale approach, and that's the approach that moves life on. The Armenian approach of uh, just 
sitting and bemoaning it every year and how awful it was, I don't see its purpose, except it makes people feel awful. And then they hate the Turks some more. And that, what does that accomplish? But I'm not so sure anybody is willing to sit down and talk with me. Uh, they've had a lot of years to think about it. I'm sure I wouldn't be the first to said we need to get over this. Uh, it's it's a really large one. You bit off a big one there, and well, I, I I'd be interested in the form in the future to stay in touch with you. Well, I'm closing with this last proposition to you, Bill Allenbach. Is whether I know you know about William, Reverend William Barber's Moral Mondays? That's a sort. We'll call that an East Coast sort of clergy. Are you our Moral Mondays on the West Coast? You know, I. I don't know. I'm not really familiar with Moral Mondays, to tell you the truth. I, I have an awful lot of stuff coming in, literature coming in, and so I, I will be very familiar with it in 10 minutes uh, <laughs> be, because it sounds interesting to me. I see my role, and you know, I'm 85 years old, so I'm pretty lucky that I can have this role. And my role is to ask people the hard questions to see if I can't get discussions going because I think we can talk through an awful lot of things in life and improve them. And so I will look up tomorrow Mondays, and it sounds like it's somebody I would like to be. I think uh, a, a little provocative and somebody that moves things forward. Well, I think you both have progressive humanitarian goals and there were moral mondays springing up on both sides of the coast and working their way toward the hinterlands and I think it's a you know mission accomplishing. Well, I want to thank you Reverend Dr. Bill Allenbach for being on Ask a Leader today. I want to thank you Claudia for uh, inviting me to come on. I always enjoy your show. You're you're a very good hostess. You know how to throw some great questions out there, and I really appreciate it. It's, uh, I love to talk about this, obviously. Well, yes, thank you so much. This was Dr. Bill Allenbach, retired Episcopal clergyman, talking about his most recently released book entitled Cramming for Finals, New Ways of Looking at Old Church Ideas, published by Summit Run Press. It's available at your favorite independent book dealer or on his website, peacelovejoyhope.com. Thanks again, Bill. Thank you. Wasn't that a fantastic interview with Reverend Bill Allenbach by Claudia? We're going to take a very short break. Please stay with me. Claudia is going to be back with you in the second half hour talking with Jose Hernandez of the OC Communities Organized for Responsible Development. That will be coming up in the second half hour. Please stay with me. You're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Ask a Leader. I am sitting in for Claudia today, though she is doing all of the interviewing. You are tuned in to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are going to get back to Claudia's interviews. Coming up is Jose Hernandez. He is with the OC Communities Organized for Responsible Development. He is coming up now. Stay tuned. My guest in this portion of the hour is Jose Hernandez. He's a community organizer with Orange County Communities Organized for Responsible Development. We'll call it ACCORD from time to time. ACCORD was founded as a community labor alliance in 2005. It combines community organizing, civic participation, strategic research, and advocacy to engage residents, workers, and stakeholders in local government decisions that impact economic opportunity, community health, and overall quality of life. Accord provides free services for low-income community members eligible to become citizens, as well as advocating for workers, immigrants, and human rights. Jose Hernandez works in Santa Ana with the Santa Ana Building Health Communities Initiative that is a 10-year project funded by the California Endowment. And this project advocates for the community participation transparency and accountability in local government and investment in community projects. In his spare time, Jose has a podcast, and everybody write this down, Ids 
happening radio show, ITZ, happening radio show, that is transmitted through Facebook Live every Monday night at 9 p.m. He supports various grassroots organizations, and I've seen him in action. Uh, El Primero Mayo, como se dice? Primero de Mayo, Día de los Trabajadores, May Day. May Day. That's one of the many things. And he's going to make us fluent in Spanish and where we get a chance. And he deals with social justice, art and culture, and autism awareness. He attended the Fullerton Community College, and he joins us from Anaheim. Welcome to the program, Jose. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, generally speaking, the campaigns and the projects that Accord is undertaking, it's all about expanding the electorate through the citizenship fair. There is equity for all in Santa Ana. There's the voting rights in Anaheim. And I think that's partly you're responsible, your organization for some of the districts that are now set up for for municipal elections. Correct. Uh, we were uh, instrumental in getting district elections uh, here in, in the city of Anaheim after uh, a, almost five years a battle to try to get uh, the city to have a better representation for its residents. And that that's a, was a, a major victory, and some replication is of interest in more areas in Orange County, believe you. I'm calling from, from in the city of Irvine. We're, we're looking for some possibilities. And then, uh, as among other campaigns and projects, also is Muslimo Latino Collaborative. So I first and mainly want to give... Jose, a chance to talk about the all-important citizenship fair. The next one of the monthly citizenship fairs will be July 22, done in shifts. I want you to talk about the clientele, Jose, who come to the citizenship fair to have their paperwork processed. Yes, you know, they're primarily low-income Latino speakers, and many of them tend to be older in age, you know, 50, 60, 70, even 80 years old. You know, these are the people that don't really see citizenship and becoming a U.S. citizen as this big uh, hill to overcome, this big obstacle. And we really make it very easy by walking them through the process of applying for citizenship, getting connected with uh, legal assessment, and then also uh, helping them through our free citizenship classes that we provide and teaching them about the issues uh, happening in their community. So, you know, we, it's really not just about helping be- people and providing services, but also connecting them to the issues happening in their community. Yeah, it, and it's it's really, you know, as you who have, have been there, really do help the community in, in very big ways. And, you know, including for those that apply, uh, that are low income, they couldn't qualify for fee waivers. And so, you know, the whole process is potentially free for many of the people that, you know, that we help. So uh, it, it really is quite a satisfaction to, to be able to change people's lives in a really significant way through our citizenship fairs and clinics. I'm guessing everybody like myself would be, we're interested in knowing those showing up. Are you seeing some trends? Is there an uptick of people that are coming to have the naturalization process take place? Absolutely. Uh, we definitely saw that, you know, in November of last year, uh, during, you know, after the election, around the time of the election, people were feeling fearful. They felt that all of a sudden, after many years of maybe kind of putting it off or saying, not having the money or, or, or whatever the case may be, that it really motivated and pushed a lot of community members, uh, you know, our immigrants, and particularly in Orange County and Anaheim and Santana, where we are mostly based out of, there we saw a, a large influx of calls and reservations for our citizenship fairs, and and it's been pretty consistent uh, throughout, you know, first all the way up until the moment that we find ourselves. Although we have had go down a little bit since that time of a big, you know, push from everybody, but. It's still, you know, a lot of people are interested in becoming citizens, uh, you know, during this time where a lot of fear, a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric is being espoused by our national leaders. So, Jose, how do you find them or they find you to get this started? Yeah, so uh, most of the time through word of mouth. That is the best way that that we get people to to find out about our services. Uh, People become citizens through our, our, our process and then they... Uh, encourage their family members, their friends, their neighbors 
to call us to sign, you know, and to make an appointment and to, to sign up for our next fair. So, you know, primarily people are calling us and, and registering that way, but they also have their, if they're, they have a com- access to computer or if they're older and they have younger children that have, you know, the ability to, uh, to do it online, then uh, they are able to then register through our website, www.occord.org. And I will make sure that goes in the podcast summary. So that, along with the July venue, will be very clear there. And so, Jose, how long does it take to have this paperwork, let's say, from the beginning of their, the, I mean, there's a little bit of vetting you do. You're, you're helping them get some of the papers ready before they come to the citizenship fair. So let's say that first encounter was some sort of general processing from that until they're eligible to take the citizenship exam. Yeah, so um, basically the process goes that from the moment that they fill out the application, they can then submit it right away or they can wait you know, a little bit until they save up money. Uh, you know, or whatever the case is. But then once they submit it, then in around two to four weeks, they get a letter uh, notifying them that that they receive the application. Then soon after, two weeks or so after, then they go for the biometrics. And then anywhere from four to eight months, then they uh, they get called for the, the interview where they have the civics test uh, to, to make sure that they know about the, U, the Constitution and all the different questions that they ask them. And then the interview process, and if they they pass that, then they then soon after about a month they go to their oath ceremony. So the process typically takes around five months, all the way up to a year, depending on you know the individual case. Okay, well that that gives everybody an idea, and so they can begin to get the application by reaching you first, or are there other public agencies or healthcare facilities or places that the paperwork can be picked up? Yeah, well, the application um, the application is available through USCIS.gov. So anybody can download and print any of the applications for renewals of green cards or application for citizenship and so on. But what we provide and what's really crucial is the, the legal assessment because um, yes. that's what really is important in this whole process because I always tell my citizenship students, Sometimes uh, when applying for citizenship, people can end up being deported uh, because then there's red flags that then, um, you know, make it that they could have things in the past that kind of, uh, you know, were overlooked. And then that becomes evident to USCIS and and folks can become, uh, end up being deported. So um, with that, then our, our legal team, whether it's the World Relief or Public Law Center or our um, care or other partners that uh, that do the legal assessment, then they are able to determine whether they are the applicant can move ahead with the process or if they need to wait a few years or if they need to just remain a resident. So uh, that's an essential step then for that legal assessment to be done. There's nothing that's been officially filed so that uh, depending because all the, the circumstances are as many as there are grains of sand in a sandbox. Absolutely. So, but so that that particular legal step is what is essentially a buffer from somebody maybe ending up in on, on a very bad path or a, a productive path. Correct. Or and also they they could end up paying hundreds, even thousands of dollars just simply for a lawyer to or or right. some kind you know some kind of a legal institution to look at them and help them fill out. And so that's what one of the huge bonuses is of going through our our program is that we provide all the services including the legal assessment all completely free of charge completely free but there must be some kind of processing or some some like i don't know about photos or there must be some small fees that are putting the application together that that are still a little bit of an outlay correct we charge our applicants absolutely zero dollars. It's um, the only thing that they uh, have to pay uh, potentially is the seven hundred and twenty-five dollars that USCIS charges uh, for those that don't qualify for the fee waiver. Uh, but for those that do, that have uh, either have Medi-Cal or uh, qualify for food stamps, then they may be able to qualify for the fee waiver. So the whole process is completely free. Uh, you know, we receive uh, grants and funding from our funders and from the state to be able to provide these services to the community 
free of charge. And there are ample opportunities for listeners to contribute to your website to underwrite some of those expenses for those filers to benefit from. Absolutely. We're always looking for for new donors and new people that really care and believe in our mission of of helping immigrants, uh, you know, be empowered through the process of of becoming naturalized, becoming a U.S. citizen, registering to vote and becoming part of of the democracy that, you know, that that makes America, you know, the great place that it is to live and that people risk their lives and everything to be able to get here uh, for a better life. Now, Jose, the the shorthand for the name of the building in Buena Park, it's Youth FCW. Is that a union hall of a particular kind? Uh, no, it's a, for a grocery store. Oh. Yeah, UFC, yeah UFCW. That's grocery, grocery unif- okay, union. So that, that location, folks, is at 8530 Stanton Avenue in Buena Park on July 22 and you sign volunteers up to help service this processing and two you have like a morning and shift and afternoon shift but you don't turn anybody away if they're straddling the shifts but you'd like to know in advance it's important for people to sign up online to reserve a spot say they're going to be coming to help out that's right and and they can uh, uh, register to to volunteer on our website again accord.org and then, like you said, we have morning shifts from 8 to 12 and then from 12 to 4. So depending on when you could be with us only in the morning or a little in the afternoon, but, you know, it really just goes a long way. And the, the vast majority of the people that are there are volunteers. And, and frankly, we couldn't do it without our volunteers. So, you know, bilingual folks are always best case scenario, but there are many English speakers that also apply, So, and, and many English-only volunteers that come and, and are able to help and be part of that experience. So speaking as an English speaker-only volunteer, I know that sometimes we can double up with an, a Spanish speaker and we can help expedite some of the paperwork there. So it's a, everybody has a role there. And I, folks, I've got to tell you, it's, it's phenomenal seeing so many people value being prospective citizens people want to be a part of the whole american political system and uh, it's just it's amazing and so you talked about english speakers but our spanish speakers but there's also arab speakers that come and uh let's see do you have some others farsi oh absolutely i mean um well, as far as like our volunteers, yeah, yes. we, we have folks that that speak, you know, Arabic or or speak Vietnamese or there are different uh, Asian languages. But yeah, the, primarily the people that are, are coming are are Latino speakers. But yeah, it's, we've recently partnered up with CARE, uh, which is a Council of uh, American Islamic Relations, and so you know they are obviously bilingual, trilingual, and and are able to you know reach that population well to to help them on the process. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Jose Hernandez. He's a community organizer with Orange County Communities Organized for Responsible Development. We call it ACCORD for short. It's a local organization which provides free services for low-income community members eligible to become citizens, as well as advocating for workers, immigrants, and human rights. And we're talking about the Citizenship Fair right around the corner on July 22nd. So the other towns you're looking for, uh, you're getting, you mentioned the World Relief Public Law Center and CARE. Are there other attorneys? You'd just be happy to have them sign up on your website to say they're coming to help out? You can never have too many attorneys there, eh? No, absolutely not. Uh, We are actually quite the contrary. That's the one constant shortage is, uh, is, you know, legal students, legal attorneys, that would be able to provide these services for them. So, you know, like I said, we we usually partner up with our friends at Public Law Center or World Relief. They do incredible work, help, you know, also doing a lot of pro bono or or low-cost work outside of our fairs to to help our our communities here in, in Orange County. But we're always, you know, welcoming new volunteers outside of our usual fold that want, you know, believe in what we're doing and want to provide, you know, their expertise for the cause. And I've met before attorneys that deal in immigration law, and they do it all week long, and they come on Saturdays to help with the citizenship fair. It's just, it's a humbling setting to participate in. I don't know, Jose, do you have any human interest sort of, uh, you know, case studies, just a story to relay about what goes on in those fairs or somebody who's gone through that five to 12 month citizenship processing? 
Oh, I have so, so many. But, um, you know, I just most recently, I, I teach citizenship classes, as I mentioned. And uh, one of my students, uh, she didn't know how to read or write, but she was able to just uh, go to the classes, learn, and she memorized them all. And she knew pretty much all 100 questions, you know, really? and answers. Yes. And oh. then, uh, yeah, and then she she went to her civics test. She passed with flying colors and and she was so happy and she was she felt like so empowered many of these people have have not gone to a a, a school type setting in decades if ever and you know for them to kind of you know feel empowered through learning about the history about learning about the constitution and then you know uh, facing the test and passing uh, it's great. And then many of our the people that we help through the process then ultimately become volunteers. Oh, I uh, see. In the fairs. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, it's just kind of, they go through it all. They they receive and then they, they give back. And, and that's really what we, we push, you know, just, you know, we help you for free. Well, help us by helping us recruit new uh, applicants and also come in and helping out our, our volunteer at our fairs. So, Jose, you we're going to check out the August. If people are saying, oh, I can't make July 22, what is the August Citizenship Fair? And generally, do you know where it's going to be? It'll be on August 26th. And um, I believe we're still trying to, uh, uh, you know, close down the location. But uh, all that information will be on our website, occord.org. O-R-G, Accord.org. Okay, and why don't you let me know uh, when, I guess I could look up on the website, but if you know before it gets posted on your website, then what I'll do is include that, and I'll edit the podcast summary so that people can see where it's going. But it's generally like the, the third, or it's the fourth Saturday of each month. Is that what you're shooting for? No, it really it really varies. It really varies. Okay. Because once a month, you know, but it can be like, Less than a month or a little more than a month. Okay. Well, I know you've got lots of citizen work on your plate and activist projects, and I don't know if, if there's any others besides the citizenship fair that right there at Accord that you're working on right now this week. Yeah, well, you know, there's, we, we have all sorts of uh, plates spinning and, uh, you know, a lot of yes. different things that we're trying to get in. But me personally, I you know, I'm a... Besides my work with the, the citizenship program, I also am a community organizer in Santa Ana. So, you know, over there we're fighting for uh, community engagement uh, and participation in the process of, you know, the general plan, the budgeting, and, and how our tax dollars are spent, you know, and what the priorities are. So right now we're looking at uh, getting land for a community land trust. We established one, created uh, one uh, in Santana called Thrive Santana. Community land trust, and um, we're really excited about community owning land collectively and being able to uh, have projects like micro farms, affordable housing, and other type of uh, projects that really, you know, empower the community and allow for land to to stay an asset of the of the people, the residents of there, you know, and take it off of the the speculative market so that housing really stays affordable. Um, and, you know, and also finding for better representation in Santana, as well as in Anaheim. As you said, we, you know, we fought for district elections in Anaheim and we won. And, but there was a ripple effect and a domino of sorts where other cities like Garden Grove, like Fullerton, decided that that was the way to go. And so we hope um, that Santana, a similar process also takes place where, you know, in the, the communities, all communities, marginalized communities are able to have a voice and have uh, council members truly represent the values and the principles of the community. Well, Jose Hernandez, I hope, I th thank you so much for bringing the It's Happening radio show vibe to Ask a Leader here at Radio KUCI. Jose Hernandez is a community organizer with Accord. Thanks for appearing on Ask a Leader today. Thank you for having me once again, and, and thanks everybody. See you July 22. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have for today. Claudia will be right back here with you next Tuesday mornings. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thanks for joining us. Have a great, great day.